Hello, my name is Eric Jacobson. Welcome to the Critical Teaching Learning Forum podcast. The Critical Teaching and Learning Forum started out as a group of educators in New Jersey who came together once a month to have an open discussion about teaching from a left perspective in a variety of contexts, including middle school, high school, college, and adult education. The forum now has a website that features articles, resources, and news of upcoming events, and we encourage you to check it out. Today's guests on the podcast are Cynthia Peters and Sergio Highland. Cynthia Peters works at World Education, where she's the editor of The Change Agent, a magazine featuring pieces written by adult learners with a focus on social justice. Cynthia also provides professional development to adult education teachers and staff. Sergio Highland is an author, speaker, and human rights activist. He also works as an organizer in Philadelphia for the Working Families Party. While incarcerated, Sergio was a frequent contributor to the Change Agent, and during the discussion, Cynthia talks about how Sergio's work is a great representation of the philosophy informing the magazine. Sergio then shares his experiences of writing while incarcerated, talks about mentors who shaped his thinking, and identifies systemic and structural issues that are at the root of so many problems. All right, I want to thank um, Cynthia and Sergio for joining me today on the Critical Teaching and Learning Forum podcast. Uh, and Cynthia, why don't we start with you? Can you explain to people a little bit about what the Change Agent is? Sure. Uh, and it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And it's great to be here with Sergio, one of our longtime Change Agent contributors. The Change Agent is a national magazine. It comes out three times a year and we publish writings by students, by adult learners enrolled in programs in the United States. And we like to especially lift up stories of people taking action in their lives, or in other words, being agents of change in their own life, maybe just in a private way, like taking charge of their own learning, for example, or maybe in the life of their family, advocating for their children at school, advocating for elders that they take care of, advocating for themselves, possibly being agents of change in their community or at their workplace on a larger scale, a kind of a more macro scale where the advocacy is less about an individual outcome and more about an outcome that will affect the whole community or affect the whole workplace. So, we, lo- we love to tell those stories. We put out a call for articles once a year and solicit students to write on whatever the topic is that we're addressing. And in the context of that topic, we tell stories of change. So what are some of the recent topics? I know that each each issue generally has a very specific topic. What are some of the most recent ones? Well, you know, we've been focusing on the pandemic a little bit because that's been so big in everybody's lives. We did an issue on the pandemic itself. Then we did one on mental health because we felt like so many people, that was such an important dimension of the pandemic was, you know, fighting to maintain your mental health, fighting to heal from from mental health challenges and struggling just to cope. And so we wanted to find out from adult learners, how are you coping? Um, We've also, we did an issue on, Um, transportation. We did one on food. We did one on hair. We did one called talking about race, where we focus on what it means to talk about race in the adult ed classroom. So that's really interesting, having students themselves talk about why it matters to them to have an opportunity to address race and racism in the adult ed classroom. So many, many more topics. um, And you know, and, and they're the each issue is really rich with discussion 
on a micro level as well as a more macro level. So uh, full disclosure, I've been on the edit, the guest editorial board a couple times of the change agent. So um, any, his, any issue that you feel like over the number of years you've been doing, it really stands out to you as like one of your favorite issues. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, honestly, I, I mentioned the hair issue just now. That turned out to be this really powerful issue because it became this opportunity for especially African-American women to talk about the role of uh, racism and oppression around personal appearance and how much that shapes so much about African-American, especially girls, um, their childhood, their growing into becoming women, their ability to get jobs, their the potential for being discriminated against at home by your own family members, also at school and then at work. And um, so that turned out to be very powerful and very political, even though people laughed at me a little bit when I said, oh, we're doing an issue on hair. They thought, wow, Cynthia usually takes on these big political topics, you know, but it turns out hair is very political. Oh, and definitely. also, honestly, our pandemic issue was really powerful and really moving in, in this way that I really appreciate adult learners can capture this so well. They can, I feel like they capture, you know, the horror of things that are rolling out in front of us and that we have to deal with every day. And they can many times capture just a joyous dimension of something. And the pandemic issue did that over and over and over again. They, they captured sort of the, how the pandemic felt like a war. But then at the same time, I'm spending more time with my children and I love it. Or I had to learn how to give my husband a haircut and we laughed, we laughed so hard during that process, you know, or, you know, just the, the little things and the little connections that brought joy. Yeah, I just had a conversation in a previous podcast with some writers from the We Learn uh, Women's Perspectives uh, writing uh, magazine, and they had a very similar experience, right, with the second pandemic issue. Right? The first pandemic issue was, oh, my God, what's going on? And the second pandemic issue was, we're still here, right, and we're resilient and we're, you know, we're making a go out of it. So, so I'm not surprised. I think... I think an important part of the change agent experience as well is not only do adult learners submit the writing, but they're also on the editorial board. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, there is plays such an important role on the editorial board. And in fact, Sergio is on the editorial board of our, our upcoming series of issues, which is going to be on immigrants and immigration. So he might want to say more about what his experience was like from his point of view, being on the editorial board. But yes, we have... On every editorial board, we have students and teachers from adult ed, and we have uh, sort of stakeholders from the community, if you will, you know, people who are engaged in the issue in one way or another. And they come and join the editorial board and they help shape, you know, with their collective wisdom, you know, what the magazine looks like. And so students sometimes come onto the board a little bit intimidated, you know, oh, I don't know what I'm going to be able to offer. I don't know if my English is going to be good enough. Um, but I find that if you have a group of students, not just if you have one who feels isolated, it might be hard to contribute. But if you have a handful of students that can kind of have solidarity with each other and see, oh, there's other people like me involved in, in this, um, then they really, their voice makes a big difference in how we produce the, the magazines. 
Sergio, before we talk about you as a writer, do you want to chime in on what your experience was being on the editorial board? So, so this is my first time being on the editorial board. I didn't know what to expect. I, I know that everybody, every team does uh, their thing differently. And so um, I was a little nervous to, um, you know, I felt like um, I had a lot of expectations and others had expectations of me as well. So I didn't want to show up as this guy that everybody was hearing about, but then disappoint. So it was, it was, it was kind of, um, it was a bit intimidating. And then I got on the board and, you know, I met everybody and we spoke, we, we, um, made small talk and then we broke off into the groups and I just told myself, you know, calm down, um, just play this out. Like you play everything else out. And that's what I did. I waited and I listened and I, and I, I found an opportunity to contribute a thought to it, to the process. And I felt like my contribution was good enough so I really, that made me comfortable. It made me feel a part of team. And it also made me realize how much goes into making an issue. Mm-hmm. You know, I edited the newsletter at the, at, when I was incarcerated, I was at SCI Chester for a number of years. Um, and I edited the newsletter there. And one thing about being in prison is if you want to do these so-called extracurricular activities, you're not going to get a lot of support. So you, mm-hmm. you have to get the most out of yourself and, and whoever you are allowed to bring with you. And it was only one other person on my team. So it was just us two. So coming to the change agent editorial board and seeing that it was multiple people with different backgrounds and everybody worked together to get one issue done. I, it was, it was, um, I, it's, I just have to tip my hat to everybody over there. How often did the newsletter come out when you were incarcerated that you worked on? Ours came out once per month. Okay. And um, it was it was on the verge of being shut down because the the prisoner who, who handled it before, he was very old. Um, he had over 50 years in, of incarceration straight. And so he wanted to move on to something. And then I came. I just happened to arrive at that prison and he was familiar with some of my stuff, my writing before, and he offered me the spot. It was when we when we got it, it was about a twelve page newsletter. But me and my my uh, co editor, who they allowed me to hire, we we uh, put a lot of energy into it and turned it into between forty to fifty page newsletter every month. Well, each month. Wow. Yes. And so much that they gave us our own budget just for paper and ink and all of that. It only lasted temporarily because. When, on the inside, when they feel like you're getting too much power or influence, they tend to cut your legs a little bit. So, so it was just distributed within the prison you were in, right? And within the prison I was in, we had plans to extend it beyond just the prison that I was at. I was at SCI Chester. We had plans on taking it to every Pennsylvania state facility, um, but again when you do these things without talking to the so-called right people first, they get offended. And it's not about what makes sense for the people. It's about what makes sense for people's egos. So we would cut short on that as well. Right. And there's, there's lots of regulations about what can be sent out of prison, right. In terms of communication from within prison to out of prison as well. Um, so 
So they can't really control what you send out as long as it's nothing like you're not trying to send a mattress or, or something like that yeah, out. Yeah. But um, people don't just send out letters or books. People, people make um, homemade pillows, teddy bears, all of those kind of things. And they're really, um, they're not really very restrictive on that kind of policy unless you're under some sort of scrutiny for, for um, a violation or a suspected violation. But as far as information, now that's something different. If right. they know that you are sending out information that they consider to be damaging, not even threatening, but damaging to their reputation or something like that, then they will censor you. And that's what happened to us. But by this time, we had already expanded. We had colleges, politicians, everybody who was coming into the institution. We were shoving these issues into their hands. Mm-hmm. So much so that when they came back into the institution, they would ask for the newsletter and sometimes for me by name personally. Did the newsletter have a name? Yeah. So when we got it, it was called the lowdown, but unfortunately, you know, that name lowdown is too closely associated with down low, which is associated with prison and, you know, the stuff that, that type of stuff. So um, I wanted to, revamped the newsletter because it had a poor reputation before it wasn't exciting um out of 12 pages eight of them were advertisements for prison programs yeah like yoga and violence prevention and things like that and so i said okay well if we're going to have eight pages of advertisements then we're going to have 30 pages of content and so uh we revamped it by giving it a new name and started to call it uh the ledger Mm -hmm. so it was sci chester's the ledger and it took off and we had people involved who never thought that they would be writing articles ever in their life. So, yeah, so that's interesting. So somebody who never thought they were going to be writing an article in their life, how did you reach out to them? How did you give them the confidence that they could submit something to the, the newsletter? So I learned from one of my mentors who was uh, passed away recently that People just want to be respected. They want to feel valued. They want people to recognize that they have worth. And being in prison for so long, and especially going there when I was very young, I learned how to identify leaders. I learned how to um, notice who who was well-respected, who was intelligent. I would talk to people and, and, and get a... Um, a pretty good feel on their political ideologies and, um, you know, just their perspectives on, on life. And for those who I thought fit what we were trying to do with the ledger, if I thought that they were, they didn't have to be in lockstep with us, but if they were aligned enough to, for us to use them in a, in a, in a magazine, in a newsletter, I would approach them or my partner would, and I would just, you know, um, I would validate them right away and acknowledge that, you know, they are a leader and their voice needs to be heard. But there's a way for it to be heard on a different through a different medium. Mm-hmm. And um, I would ask them, hey, you ever considered writing an article? And they would say, nah, what would I write about? And I say, well, we just had a whole conversation right here, you know, about how this type of food isn't good for you. And you had five people listening to you, but they could be over there playing basketball. You know, you're very popular. If somebody saw you write, you know, they want to write as well. 
plus I can get you in there more and even to, to encourage people even more, we put a proposal in to, and I got this from Cynthia. We put a proposal in to provide a stipend mm-hmm. for two articles per issue. One was for $15, one was for $10, but in prison, $15 goes a long way. So we had a bunch of people vying for those stipends. And this is how we got interest in the newsletter. So you kind of, through the stipends, you built almost like a staff, like a regular staff for the newsletter? So so they didn't let me have an official staff. Uh-huh. So me and my partner, Justino Griggs, who was a very, very intellectual person, uh, he's very intelligent, well-spoken, and experienced. And so, which is why I picked him. He's one of my mentors over the years. But um, we literally had to make sales pitches to guys in, in, in on the school, on the prison, on the basketball court, or in the weight room, or at the chow hall, and say, "Listen, you're not gonna make any money, <laughs> but if you do a sports column every month." I can guarantee you access to a computer where you can work on your personal memoirs instead of using a 1980s typewriter. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Or I would say, uh, listen, you are the vice president of the IIO, which is the inmate improvement organization, the, uh, which is the inmate, the only sanctioned inmate organization in the prison. It's like a political organization, even though it's very limited power. Um, but they control things that people want. Like, the hoagie and cheesesteak and donut sales, things like that. And so they're important people on the inside. So I would say, look, we will promote your, your, your bid to be reelected. If, if, if you in turn write a column every month about what the IO is doing and how people can be involved. And uh, this is how we would get people involved. I will put artwork in there. Mm-hmm. Um, we would have resources for people and their families, like for free books, clothing donations, et cetera, those, those kind of things. And it was really good. And we, we had a, a good thing going. There's a really, there's an interesting parallel between what you're, the story you're telling and the, and the, how the change agent works. You know, I mean, a lot of people who write for the change agent don't think of themselves as writers. And, um, then they start to think of them, you know, if the teacher kind of supports them to write, they hear back from an editor who has feedback for them, who maybe wants to know more about something or asks, invites them to sort of pursue something a little bit more deeply. They start to feel like, oh, wow, I'm being treated like a writer, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And then that makes me feel like a writer. And then that makes you want to get in there and try to write the story. Right. Um, and I hear that from change agent contributor. I might've heard that from you, Sergio, too, actually. Yeah, I mean, Change Agent did so much for my confidence because when I met you, I was just, I was just, I was fresh from being mentored by Russell Schultz and Mumia Abu Jamal and Salim Holbrook. But I hadn't, what I knew and the things I spoke about were confined along with me within the prison walls. And, and meeting you, and um, getting my articles published in a change agent, it really made me, it gave me a sense of pride because now I'm like, hold on. I'm, I'm not just a prisoner here. Like people in society are seeing the things that I'm saying 
And um, I know it's not nothing because, you know, here I got paid for it and nobody's paying for something they don't want. So it, it gave me the change agent did like, I can't explain, I can't quantify like what it did for my confidence. Do you, what was your, what was the first piece that you had published in the change agent? Oh, I remember that one. It was the job is a job is a job, right? That was the name of the article. And it was about work. It was the issue on work that Cynthia uh, referenced earlier, where I basically said, um, I explained to how when I grew up, I did volunteer work with my aunt at her food, um, pantry and she would she would do is like a true evangelist right she would get people in and make sure they listen to her sermon first and then after the sermon that she gave out the bags that we handmade the night before and um it you know i like that kind of job because it it, it, it teaches compassion and understanding and humility and i just went in an article i said that that's what a job should be a job shouldn't feel like work it should be it should feel like life. It should feel like, you know, I'm doing what I love to do and I would do extra of it if they asked me and you got to pay me. I remember, I totally remember that article and I remember seeing that kernel of really profound meaning inside that story. And, you know, a job is a job is a job, right? And your, your answer is no, no, it's not. Like a job should be more than just this thing you have, you have to slog your way through every day. Um, and it should be, it should give you meaning. It should deliver, um, you know, something important to your life. It shouldn't just be the means to a paycheck. And I thought that that was so deeply political, really important point to make. And I remember thinking, okay, who is this guy? And what else does he have to say? And little by little, we got amazing uh, articles from you over the years, Sergio, probably, you know, 10 or 12 years worth of, of, of writing. It's crazy. So, so Sergio, yeah, across 10 or 12 years, uh, you know, I know with writers, sometimes it's like asking parents to pick their favorite child. Right. But like of those 10 or 12 years, are there any of your pieces that really stick out to you as ones that, you know, you keep coming back to and thinking like, yeah, I nailed that one. Yeah, actually, it's funny. So uh, our, it's oh, this I wrote a, an article called. um fund the schoolhouse not the jailhouse it was about stopping the 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 school to prison pipeline and in there i i um i made the link between back in i think 2014 philadelphia ended up closing down over three dozen public schools because they claimed they didn't have the funding. They needed about $390 million to fund it. And the question was, why doesn't the city have $390 million? Or why won't the state give $390 million to fund public schools? What, what most people weren't talking about, though, is that that $390 million was rounded off to $400 million, was used to start construction of a new state prison, state of the art, 5,000 beds, the most advanced facility on the East Coast. And so I just explained how you shut the schools down to build a prison. This is the pipeline right here because now people, children don't have a place to go. So what are they going to do? They're going to hang out. 
And what happens when you hang out, you get into trouble. What happens when you get into trouble, you go to this new fancy facility that they just built. And I say it's a funny story because while I was filling out my application for the workers, working families party, I wanted to reference that article. But the, the only place that ever published it took it down. And I don't have a copy of it. And nobody does. It's lost. So that wasn't that wasn't a change agent article. No, it was one of my favorite articles. I did a lot of really a favorite. I have a favorite for the change agent, though, it was the Native American issue. I loved that issue right there. I loved it. Where did but, you where did you part? Sorry, where where was the School of the Prison Pipeline one published? It was published in the it's a organization in Pennsylvania called Decarcerate PA. Okay. And they run a program called Books Through Bars where they do um they send books, but they also created like a study correspondence course for people specifically in solitary confinement on on um and they're still around but they updated their website. And the only way you even know that this article exists is because the co-founder of Decarcerate PA wrote an article where he quoted me in that. And at the end of his article, he put the link to it. But when you hit the link, it's down. This is the dangers and wonders of technology, right? That like the website and the web, the web can give us so much, but it also can just sort of like disappear. Right? I'm upset about that one. Trust me. Yeah, I'm sure. What was the piece that you did for the Native American issue? Oh, so you know, when that when I found out they were, that's what the issue was on, I knew what I wanted to do right away. I just wondered, did it fit? So I had to make a way to, to make it find a way to make it fit. And so what I did was I just. Um, I showed the history of not just um, I show how slavery and natives or Native American culture had a had a link. I showed how um, how escaped slaves would migrate to the south, the deep south and southern Florida near the like the roughest terrain. And in and, and, and the process of that, they would um, they would mix with the natives. I think it was a Seminole. Seminoles, yeah. Yeah, but that's, that's where the name became. It wasn't Seminole at first. They had another name, but they ended up being named Seminole because Seminole means runaway. And, oh. and so those, those uh, escaped slaves would go down, mix with them, and some of the natives who were free and, and, and had certain types of rights would, would claim that this this black, this African was uh, one of their slaves in order to not be recaptured. But um, so, you know, I just basically argued that we have a common history. You know, we fought together. We we struggled together. We loved together. We mixed. We had uh, produced. Uh, we procreated, you know, and we are we have more in common than we, than we have not in common. No, and it's still, it's the current day, right? The people uh, on the front lines uh, fighting against white supremacy in all of its forms, you know, Native Americans, African Americans, you know, on the front lines of that fight, you know. Uh, right. And, um, so what what role did writing play in your own development, right? So, you know, you weren't 
you weren't necessarily thinking about yourself as a writer, but then you get started and then you end up writing for 10 or 12 years. So how was writing a part of your own learning? When I was in, when I was in solitary confinement, which is where all of my education took place or, or the, the early part of my education took place in solitary confinement. I went there when I was young and solitary confinement is a place that breaks people. It breaks your mind. It breaks your spirit, your body. And I was on that path as well. And then I met some older guys who had been enduring solitary confinement for decades straight. And just the fact that they survived that inspired me. So I would listen to them. And um, as it turned out, two of them happened to be former Black Panthers. One of them was in the Black Liberation Army, you know, and, and so which gave me more of a respect for them. And, and they they would express things on it because we had to talk on the door. Um, we had to yell out the door to communicate or talk through the vent, yell through the vent. We could hear each other if we were in the same vent. Um so sometimes they would say things and have conversations that were over my head and I would write down questions or I was, uh, or I would say, look, I don't want to, I would just have an opinion. I would say, look, I don't agree. I think you're wrong because this, that, this, that, and this, and I would write it down because I didn't want to be on the door arguing. And those letters turned into um, papers back and forth. And when I, I I started listening to people speak and just being more critical of, of how people spoke, and I would tell myself, I wouldn't voice that to anybody, but I would tell myself I didn't want to sound like that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a better speaker. Um, then once I got, you know, those, those skills together, I, I started being able to take on um, more complicated or complex studies. And my writing just started out like that. Just we had a circle of guys, maybe five of us who, who did what we considered serious writing and we would write our papers and share them with each other. And, um, and you know, they never did the papers never went anywhere. They would never published anything like that, but it's a saying that they have in sports for the preseason, like preseason football. They say it doesn't count, but it does matter. And so those papers may not have counted, but they mattered. What's so what's the process like if you've got a group of guys who are all in isolation, you're you're allowed to communicate with each other in writing? No. So we're not even allowed to talk on the door. Right. I figured that much. But like, yeah. Um, every time you leave your cell when you're in solitary confinement, you are escorted three guards per prisoner. You are handcuffed and shackled. They put a tether on you, which is a dog leash. And they have long, like, uh, wooden staffs where they can hold you at a distance. Mm-hmm. So you're not allowed to have anything with you when you leave your cell. What we would do is we would write what we wrote, and then we would we would fish it to each other. We would, we would take a sheet and rip it up for, to make, like, fishing line. We would put a weight on the end of the fishing line and something to keep it grounded, like a heavy envelope. And we would slide it out under the door and it would shoot all the way down the hallway. And the person in the other cell would do the same thing and latch on to mine and pull it in. 
that's how we would fish and get our letters to each other or our papers or our books, pictures, whatever. Sometimes we would smuggle them out to the, to the yard if we had a weak, a weak officer who, who didn't pay attention to the search very well. And, um, you know, we, we did all of these things. And some, most of the times it worked. Sometimes you got caught, but it was worth it. I feel like I need to cut this part out. <laughs> like, just in case uh, some prison guard is like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I understand that, right? But here's the thing. I know, and so do they, that that will never be stopped. They can't. You will never stop a prisoner from being able to accomplish what it is that they want to accomplish. And this is why I try to get the message out that there's a negative connotation when it comes to that type of stuff. They think people think that people in prison plotting all day long, just we have nothing to do but plot. No, that's, that's not, that's not the case, but we understand to get things done. We have to be determined and innovative and creative and, and daring sometimes. And so they, a, a guard is not going to risk their life, their pension or anything to, to stop somebody from smuggling a letter to the yard. Yeah. It's not going to happen. All right. I just, you know, very mindful of that stuff. Cause like nowadays when you go to protests, you know, people are like, I think more careful now than they used to be about not taking pictures of people's faces, you know, uh, and right, things like right, that, right. because like, why are you going to share this information that somebody could use, right. you know, to nab somebody for being at a protest. Right. So we need to be right. very careful. On the one hand, you want to share, you know, and celebrate creative problem solving, right. That, that you guys were involved in. On the other hand, you don't want to be part of shutting it down by like, you know, revealing right. too much. Yeah, I understand. They're not going to shut that down. It's impossible. All right. Well, it's like um, shutting down the human spirit. You know, you just, yeah, you know, right. apparently you can't really do it. You right. Know? Um, what do you, what were some of the key lessons you learned from working with the folks from the black Panther party? Oh, so I learned, this is great right here. The key lessons that, that I learned from working with specifically Russell Maroon Schultz is that um, I learned how they failed. I learned to disavow the, the belief system that they, that they had, which eventually led to their destruction. And what I mean by that is um, the sexism that we claim we're against, but we indulge in every day. Um, the patriarchal beliefs that we claim that we're against, but um, are such a part of our life. Um, the the want for fame or attention, um, and just the lack of discipline, and and then this, the 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 um, and the necessity of security, being more security minded. So I learned that from them because that is what uh, Maroon really, really taught us was that you, each generation is just supposed to be better than the last, not perfect, but that's why it's a revolution. And Fidel Castro used to always say that a revolution never ends, you know, it's ongoing. It's, uh, that's basically what we learned from them. We learned those things. What are, right. So, and as a, you know, as an, 
as a man, as someone who's identified and, and identifies as a man, right? So unlearning sexism and unlearning the patriarchy is never ending, right? So, yeah, right. so right. what are, uh, do you think that your own writing, I, I think about this as a writer myself, did you see, or do you see your writing as one of the tools that you have for like unlearning the patriarchy and unlearning sexism? Yeah, I do. I, 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 have a habit of thinking before I do anything, I would think, what would this person think? What would that person think? And sometimes when I'm in my emotional state, I, I want to say certain things because I'm, I'm angry and I'm hurt. But then I say, then what? After I say it, then what? Like my reputation is ruined. I ruined relationships. I disappointed people. And so, like you said, it's a, it's an ongoing thing. It's lifelong. Um, so I use my writing to the good thing about writing is that you can write it and nobody hears it or sees it. You can always go back and change it. And so I, I, I use my, my writings to um, express who I am, but also who I want to be. And that's how, that's how I teach myself those things. And that's how I try to teach others. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I can't teach somebody something without also embracing it myself. For me, for me, it's kind of the flip side. Like my, my socialized uh, identity as a man that if I'm upset, I stop talking. So, so rather than, you know, expressing anger or saying, you know, hurtful words, you know, I engage in probably hurtful silence, right? That like, I'm, I'm not communicating, right? And so one of the things that I have to unlearn is like, is silence, right? It's like that, that what silence can do and how silence can sound sometimes, right? So I think right. that for me, writing is, you know, sometimes helps me get, you know, past that and remind me like, all right, so... When you're not talking, this is a, this is what people are getting when you're not talking, right? right. So, right. but as someone, you know, as someone who was uh, born in New England of Finnish ancestry, uh, older child Capricorn, not talking comes fairly easily to me sometimes because all those personality traits come together. But sometimes I'm pushing against that. Um, so. I know that you did some work in, in prison as a peer counselor, right? So, uh, and it sounds like you drew on this experience to think about how to work with folks. Do you, can you think of a moment that you spent doing that, that peer counseling work where you really felt like you had an insight into sort of the nature of teaching and learning? Yeah. Um, I think that, <clears throat> okay. So when they started the program in, the CPS program, which is certified peer specialist, which is an actual uh, mental health um, certification. We're certified by the Pennsylvania state certification board. Um, I didn't think people would embrace that program much. Like I thought that because prison is a very um, personal place, like it's very people on edge. People are very private with information. Um, they don't want to appear vulnerable. Uh, most most men on the inside of male prisons have an alpha male personality. So everybody is challenging everybody else and competing 
to to I guess to be at the top. So I didn't expect people to embrace that program very much, but I noticed very quickly that people were were not afraid to ask for help. <clears throat> you know, if they were struggling mentally or emotionally, um, they were not afraid to build a relationship with a CPS. And that became that CPS's client. And so when we made rounds, we had certain people who we knew to check up on. And so um, I noticed that a lot of the younger guys would call me. It was either a lot of the younger guys or a lot of the older guys. It was never really too much in between with me because they were the younger guys either wanted to learn from me and the older guys loved that I learned, I wanted to learn from them. And so um, I was always sort of in the middle, which I guess made me such an effective organizer or leader on the inside is that I was on the middle and I could relate to my generation, the previous and, and, and the one after. So the older guys may be also getting to a stage in their life where they're letting go of the ego a little bit because they've had that experience. And the younger guys, don't have a fully formed ego yet. Right. So you've got, you've got that opening on either side, but right. The people that have been around for a while who are invested in like, you know, their self identity, maybe less, less open. Yeah. I mean, so I have a technique that I use, um, whether it's talking to other prisoners, whether it's talking to the public or whether it's talking to the administration or legislators or um, just or especially when I'm in those college groups. So the technique I use is this. I pretty much feel like, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am, but I feel like there's a stigma attached to prisoners, right? That we're um, uneducated, inarticulate, um, thugs, criminals, um, you know, just don't have anything to offer. That stigma is also attached to the black and brown communities as well. So it's sort of like the double whammy <clears throat> when we meet people. And because, you know, of, of, you know, the colonized mentality, unfortunately, is that we think that of each other as well. And, <clears throat> and so my technique is I let them think that about me and then I ease in. And, and then I just blow up those stereotypes and people learn quickly that I can have a conversation with anybody in any position on any topic about any error or anything else. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say that because that's what I pride myself on, on being that right there, because that is how you're going to get people to respect you and listen to you. And that's what I use when the younger guys hear me speak, when they see the things that I'm doing, they are impressed. That's when I slide up on them and I say, listen, I'm not saying that you can't go smoke that weed that you are about to smoke. You can do whatever you want. However, I want you to also be careful. And when you come down from that, we got something up here that you can be involved in. And we, we, we like your presence up there. We think that you will be welcome up there. And that's how, that's how we get things done like that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting that you're pointing out that, you know, one of the things that you learned was that people aren't afraid to ask for help, you know, in in that setting. And and I don't know that that's true in the kindergarten to 12th grade or the college experience. I think there's a lot of students 
in K-12 and in college who are afraid to ask for help, right? And so then I think we need to ask why those situations, why those institutions create a fear on the part of people wanting to you know, be willing to ask for help, right? It's not on them that they don't want to ask for help if they're afraid. Someone's made them afraid, right? So like, what is it about, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade or being in college that's made you as a student, as a, as an adult, as a learner, afraid to, to ask for help, right? And so that's, you know, I think that's a systemic problem that people, you know, might be afraid to ask for help in these places. That's what I was about to say. I think it's more than, I think it's more than a fault of the, the, the K through 12, I think it's a societal thing. I think it is a cultural thing. Um, people are afraid to be wrong. They think that being wrong or not knowing is a sign of weakness. And so they would rather not ask than to admit that they're wrong or don't know for fear of being belittled. And I think in prison, you learn to get over that very quickly. Because you don't know. I don't, I don't care who you are. Unless you are a career prisoner, you don't know. And if you don't get over that very quickly, then you will find out the wrong way. And so the smart people who, who enter prison, they realize that, hey, if I don't know something, I better ask because I could, I could pay for it. Society is different. You know, to not know is to be run. That's why... I, <clears throat> you know, I, I consider myself to be a lifelong student. I will ask you a thousand questions. I just pray that you don't get tired of me, but that's just how I am. What, one of the things that we were talking about before we started the recording was the nature of podcasts, the nature of interviews, uh, and how they're often edited uh, to get rid of the pauses and the silences and how that's actually modeling you know, a way of communication that's not realistic, right? And that, and that pauses are actually moments when people are thinking or reflecting or looking for insight, right? And so, yeah, like we, we have to be okay with not knowing. We have to be okay with asking questions, right? And um, yeah, it's I, oftentimes I think it, from a different perspective, like after I see a movie or I see a play or, you know, I just finish your book, and somebody will say, oh, you saw that movie. What do you think? And I'm like, I don't know. I just saw it like five minutes ago. <laughs> like, right. like, ask me tomorrow, ask me next week, and then I'll tell you what I think about it, right? But like, it just ended five minutes ago. It's going to take me a while to think about this and to think through this to give you something that's not just like, you know, right. no, nonsense. You know, what you, what you just said, I compare it to um, what... Uh, this white supremacist patriarchal society emphasizes as beauty and they put the, they objectify a woman and they, and they say that beauty is this. If it's not this, then it's not beautiful. And if it isn't the opposite of beautiful is, is ugly. And so if I don't look like this, then I'm not beautiful. And that's a false expectation. So it's the same, like what you said, people need to see these natural conversations take place so they can say, Hey, look, that's how it really is. That's how I am. So I'm developing properly. When they see you edit it up, they think that that's normal and they try to chase that and it's not realistic. And um, they can really hurt themselves or put themselves in a bad spot 
by thinking that that's the case. So, yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, it's like a, the communication version of airbrushing models, right? right. <laughs> like, like, it becomes this ideal that's not real, right? As opposed right. to like, you know, this is actually how people talk. This is how people right. look. You know, this right. is how people act. So, um, so what's next for you in terms of writing? I know that you've got a new position, like you got a new job with the Working Families Party. Right. So right. what's next for you as a writer? So I brought home... Um, several pages of a memoir I started in prison and it wasn't even for any reason. I just, we would get done our duties and we would have extra time on the computer. And I saw, I said, okay, let me write about this experience in solitary confinement. Or let me write about when I first came to prison. And before I looked up, I said, hold up. I have three sections here. Each is about 10,000 words long. And, um, I might have something, but I also have a bunch of my papers that I, I wrote for um, the co different college courses that I took that I would love to put a book together, sort of like uh, memoirs, but they would lead up to these different experiences. And I'll say, well, this is the time where I took the sophomore class on punishment and the final paper was on such and such, and here it is. And I'll put that in there or something. So that's kind of like my vision on that. I really want to put that together. I also wrote a book. I have it right here. It's even on a PDF file. Um, I just had to do some final edits to it. But I wrote a book on um, the unwritten rules of prison, how to survive on the inside of prison. These are the rules that they don't tell you. And some of them are, many of them are controversial. Many of them you may not even believe in morally however your morals sometimes are going to come into question when you had to survive in the prison that's just how it is mm -hmm. and it's not how it should be but this is just another reason why prisons shouldn't exist they put people in situations they shouldn't have to be in so as part of your work with working family party is is towards prison abolition so we support that that is definitely one of the things that we support. Um, but that's not it. Our work isn't centered around that. That's just a, I tell people all the time and they get mad at me sometimes, especially, um, my comrades doing this type of work on the inside and outside of prison is that prison abolition is a big deal, but in the big scheme of things, it's a small thing because prison is just another symptom of what we're trying to, what we need to destroy. If we, if we address poverty, if we address education, if we address capitalism, if we address these things, then, you know, by virtue of that, prison will, won't, there won't be a need for prison, which means there won't be a need for police, which means there won't be a need for criminal court. All of these institutions start to fall if we address the right things. And so people, some people can't see it like that. And so I've gotten into like some really heated discussions with, with, with people over that. Because they, they, when you say that, they think that you're not prioritizing prison abolition. And I say, hey, listen, I just gave prison 22 years of my life and I'm only 40. I'll be 41 in July. So believe me, abolition is a top priority. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, coming from a police abolitionist perspective, right? If you don't 
take care of mental health, if you don't take care of people who are unsheltered, if you don't take care of people, you know, who are having problems with substance abuse, then you're going to be creating these situations right. where people end up in the carceral system, right? right. So, so you have to address all these issues at the same time. You know, sometimes you can have the conversation with people and get them to understand that the overarching problem is sort of, you know, white supremacist colonial capitalism. Sometimes they won't go there with you. Right, right. right, right. But, but sometimes you can get part of the way there, right? And talk about, you know, these other societal issues. So, all right. All right well, I, I hope some of this comes together in ways that people can read. I mean, it sounds exciting. Yeah, definitely. I'm trying. Trust me. Right. And Cynthia, uh, shout out for the next issues of The Change Agent. How can people find out more about it? Yeah, well, our website is changeagent.nelrc.org. And the next series of issues that is going to be coming out during the school year of 2022-23 is on immigrants and immigration. And our current series is on work during COVID. And we have some really powerful articles by uh, students talking about how they've advocated for themselves on the job, how they've advocated for, you know, the, the aspects of work that aren't paid work, like taking care of your kids, uh, which took on a whole different dimension during COVID. Uh, so there's really powerful stuff. Also, even the work of, of, of uh, volunteering in your community to keep your community safe. So when we say work during COVID, we don't just mean the work you do for a paycheck, we mean the work that you do in so many parts of life, you know, to keep your community healthy and your family healthy. Great. I'll put links to that on the website so everybody can access those, including some of Sergio's work and previous issues of the change agent. Um, And I want to thank you for your time and stay safe. Uh, Thank you. I enjoyed it. Yeah. um, It's really fun and I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much, Eric. And great to hear you, Sergio. I want to thank Cynthia and Sergio again for sharing their time and insights with me today. I echo Cynthia's words and hope that you will check out past issues of The Change Agent and that you will consider having people in your program contribute to upcoming issues. As noted during the conversation, Sergio continues to write, and I encourage you to keep an eye out for his work. Thank you. Stay safe.